0: This is History West Midlands.
1: In 1816, Jane Austen famously described Birmingham as... "...not a place to promise much." Yet 50 years later, it had been transformed into what one visitor said was... "...the chief centre of civilisation, the chief town of democracy." the town from which liberty radiates to all the world. Bestriding and driving this dramatic change was the imposing bearded figure of Birmingham's now forgotten prophet, George Dawson. Today, it's very difficult to find any trace of the renowned Victorian who did so much to shape not only Birmingham, but also civic life around the world. To discover more about George Dawson and to understand why he was so influential, The publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs, talked to Professor Ewan Fernie, chair of Shakespeare Studies at the Shakespeare Institute of the University of Birmingham,
0: who believes that it's time to bring Dawson out of the shadows. George Dawson, who lived from 1821 to 76, is one of the great forgotten men of history. I I see him as a, a lost prophet of modern life. And he was especially important to the history of Birmingham. Thomas Carlyle called him Birmingham Dawson. In a way, Dawson was Birmingham. And in a very important sense, he created Birmingham. He created an idea of Birmingham, which was enormously important in its time. It led to Birmingham being explicitly referred to as the best governed city in the world, as the most artistic town in England. Chamberlain, his successor, said that Dawson's name was written through the history of Birmingham's institutions as if through a stick of rock.
2: Where did he come from? What was his background and what brought him to Birmingham?
0: Well he came for a job Mike. (laughs) He had a job offer to be the preacher at Mount Zion Baptist Chapel. He came from London. His father was a schoolmaster. He did his higher education in Scotland at Aberdeen and Glasgow which is significant because he was a nonconformist and therefore couldn't take a place up at Oxford and Cambridge. He came as a sort of heterodox, sort of rather loose limbed Baptist preacher to the Mount Zion Chapel in Birmingham in 1844. And that was one of those amazing to our minds places that could sit about 2,000 people. But when George Dawson, as a young man, came to Birmingham, he filled the place. Unfortunately, from the Baptist point of view, he did so without any real sense of loyalty to the Baptist creed and he started giving communion to everybody. He had to leave the Baptist church. He did so, but some of the great men of Birmingham built a new church for him. And Dawson then had a big church on Edward Street, bang in the center of town, built to his specification. He had a hymn book, but it was not the sort of hymn book that you or I would recognize. It had bits of poetry in it set to music. It had bits of the Catholic liturgy, but also pieces of Protestant liturgy. It had bits of Schiller that Dawson had translated. He was making it up as he went along. He was making up religion. He made up culture. He made up an idea of local government, which was probably instrumental to the idea of local government as such.
2: What was the Birmingham that he came to like
0: I think it was a city in process. So when Carlyle is here, he writes disparagingly about it as a dirty, chaotic place. And the chartist Thomas Cooper was dismayed by the number of prostitutes in the middle of the town and even around the cathedral. But it's also a place of great energy. It's a place you could come to make a fortune. Dawson did that. He did have offers to leave Birmingham and he didn't. He felt his mission was here. This was an exciting place to be.
2: So what was it like to attend one of his, would you call it a service or his meetings? Yes, the
0: services were passionate, edifying, but also very worldly. He wasn't interested in a kind of sequestered piety. He wanted to inspire people with a desire to do things in the world, to make the world a better place and a better place for everybody. And as I say, his idea of a better place wasn't an idea of really virtuous people doing virtuous things, but boring each other. He believed in art, he believed in pleasure, he believed in beauty, and he spoke powerfully for that too. His first public speech in in Birmingham was to the Temperance Association, but he spoke in favour of drink. (laughs) It gives, gives you an idea of the kind of man he was. So he caused a sensation in Birmingham and beyond. And for a while, I think he was largely hated. But by the time he met his untimely end... Birmingham had taken him to its heart and he was enormously mourned in this city by men, women and children across it.
2: And what sort of people attended his services?
0: I think a lot of the great nonconformist elite of Birmingham loved Dawson. He was a natural leader and they looked to him as such. So Samuel Timmins, for instance, who was the co-founder of the Shakespeare Memorial Library, he was one of Dawson's congregation, if that's the right word. Robert Martineau actually attended as well. And he was met, I think, in Ladywood, which was then an elegant suburb, really, of Birmingham after a service and he said to a passerby, oh Will, this is the preaching I have longed for all my life. So for many people Dawson gave them a vision and he gave them a reason to live and to be proud and to work and to strive and to enjoy themselves. He was popular it seems with the female elements of the congregation as well. He was a charismatic man who used that charisma to do great things. He enjoyed it but he also had a mission in Birmingham
2: and what motivated him?
0: I think he really was a modern man, Dawson, in many ways. And he didn't turn his face from industrial modernity, as many intellectuals did. Dawson welcomed the new world after the Industrial Revolution as an opportunity to make a better world. He wasn't afraid of technology. He didn't think it had done enough yet for all people. He wasn't afraid of the new city. So When John Ruskin came to Birmingham just after Dawson's death, I think Ruskin expected to be the great prophet here and that people would sit at his knee and hang on his every word. And he found a group of Dawson's followers and friends who were highly motivated, who lived in the city, and who who had their own idea about what modern life would be. Ruskin's idea was more pastoral. It was a bit more reactionary, beautiful in many ways. But Dawson's idea was the city now could become a harbinger of what life could be. And he and others after him very seriously spoke about Birmingham as a new Venice, a new Florence. They didn't mean that it was going to look like Venice and Florence. They meant that as they were new in their time and trailblazing, so Birmingham.
2: And clearly he was a man of great ideas and great words. Did it translate into actually delivering change in the city?
0: Yes, it really did. I mean, he's a very unusual intellectual, I think, because he is also somebody who gets stuck in. And he sat on every committee, almost literally in Birmingham. And this was a time when they had a committee for everything, because they were really trying to invent modern life as it could and as it should be. And the creative energy is astonishing. So he's there campaigning and chairing committees for the 10-hour movement, which would reduce working hours to a somewhat more reasonable length of day for working men. But he also, he's athletic and he encourages athletic associations. He's utterly serious about education and education for all. He says absolutely clearly, I'm quoting him here, the highest truths are cognizable by all. He says sentimental twaddle, his words, is talked about keeping fiction and ideas away from ordinary working men. And he's a champion of women's education as well. He believes in the power and possibility of every human being, and he tried to create a city which would cultivate that. New institutions were made. Joseph Chamberlain, his much more famous successor, said that every institution in this city owes much of its mandate and character to George Dawson. And it does indeed seem to be true. So almost any great Birmingham institution you think of, he's there either at its beginning or at the beginning of its precursor. So from the Birmingham Philharmonic Society, which I suppose is the precursor of Symphony Hall, to the library where he gives the great opening speech, which becomes famous in its time, but also to Birmingham's Children's Hospital. He's there too. He gives an extraordinary address. And he praises not just the institution, but the beauty of the building. And he insists that the beauty of the building is part of the well-being of the sick children who are treated there. So he's an amazing man. And he speaks, I think, across the 150 years between us and him with an incredible directness and clarity and good humour and charisma. So I feel he's really got something to say to us now.
2: In a subsequent programme, you yes. and I are going to talk about the Shakespeare Memorial Absolutely. Library. Yeah. But where does yeah. Shakespeare and the Shakespeare Memorial Library yeah. fit into this obviously very complex but very committed man?
0: It sounds like a kind of esoteric indulgence, really, doesn't it, for a man who wants to change the lives of the city who wants to change the lives of everybody. He was a great champion of ordinary people and indeed of the oppressed. And the Shakespeare Library, it wasn't just a kind of amateur undertaking. The desire was to collect absolutely everything, all the criticism, all the additions. And I think it shows the distance we've got from Dawson and his time that now you look at that and you think, oh, it's clearly for professors and postgraduates. But for Dawson, it really wasn't. He really did believe that Shakespeare was of the people. I mean, after all, he's a a Glover's son from Stratford who never himself went to university. So it was of the people, but also for the people, because for Dawson, Shakespeare wasn't some kind of excessively highfalutin thing that only real eggheads could get. Shakespeare was life at its most alive. Dawson called it the water of life, and he insisted that it should be available to all of the people. This was a time as you know when Birmingham's water itself needed cleaning up and the basic conditions of material existence needed attending to and Joseph Chamberlain more than anyone really saw to that but he did so partly inspired by Dawson and Dawson is important because Dawson is there saying but to give the people parks, libraries, great pictures, Shakespeare also matters. Don't just give them mere life, they're not Animals, they're not drudges, they're people in the highest sense of that term. And for him, that meant giving them culture. And not just giving them culture, making them active participants in culture. So he wasn't just somebody who thought, I, the great George Dawson, give you the plebs, you know, our great possessions and now love and honor me. No, Dawson actually said, I'm not a professor, I've never been given an honorary degree, I'm not a priest don't call me reverend. Instead, I'm reverent. I love life. I revere it. I love the best things in life. And he did love them. He loved food and drink, and he was interested in human beauty. And But he thought everybody has a capacity for that, for enjoyment, for life at its fullest. And for him, giving Shakespeare away to the people was part and parcel of that.
2: And very different to today's thinking, isn't it? What could we learn from Dawson in today's world.
0: Dawson really was in many ways ahead of his time. For Dawson, life all hangs together. So he says there isn't such a thing as political life and religious life and business life and so forth. he says, and if you accept that, you absolutely restrict and deform your own humanity. And that's why he didn't really want a profession. He wanted all of us to identify with each other and to share in each other's talents and accomplishments as if they were, to use a kind of loaded word, a commonwealth. I think Dawson imagines the city as a kind of cultural commonwealth in which we all share. So nobody owns great art. Everybody owns it. Nobody owns the great achievements of our culture. Everybody owns it. And nobody owns the wealth of capitalism. We should all take a share in it.
2: And all of this philosophy seemed to be encapsulated in one phrase, the civic gospel. Yes,
0: the civic gospel. It's right to think of Dawson as the prophet of the civic gospel. He does essentially invent it. What it was is another question, and I think it's a new mission, it's new good news for the city. It has the intensity of a religious mission and inspiration, but it's not about the heavenly city. It's not about laying up all your treasure in heaven. It's about the modern world now. It's about Birmingham as a city with enormous challenges and problems, but also with enormous potential to be a new kind of Metropolis.
2: Why Birmingham? Was it just luck that he yeah. came to the city and the city welcomed him?
0: There is some luck involved. I mean, there always is. And I think Dawson would have acknowledged that. But I think for people like Dawson, it was an opportunity. It was a tabula rasa. It didn't have the same tradition. It had exploded into It, You know, it had come from nowhere. It had mushroomed. And for a man like Dawson, who identified with young people, he thought that Birmingham was young. He thought the times were young. And he asked us all to be young again, and this was the right place to do it.
2: Birmingham at this time was a global city. How is that reflected in his interrelationship with other countries.
0: Birmingham was becoming a global city. It was kind of being born into international significance, actually an international significance which can surprise us now. But Dawson indeed was well-known. So I found a a memoir which recorded that a well-to-do Adelaide family had visited Birmingham in the 1860s, and Dawson was still quite young and one of the signs of that family said that he he was extremely surprised that there wasn't more kind of agitated talk about this reformer George Dawson, and that he was much more notorious among them. That's in Adelaide, twenty years after Dawson's death, in the Brisbane Telegraph, as an article: Brisbane needs a Dawson. Oh, for but one Dawson to challenge the culture of shameless littleness and selfishness and civic. Life. And it turned out that Dawson's obituary was syndicated all across rural Australia. I think Dawson felt deeply responsible towards and for the people of the city, but he didn't want to just an inward-looking city. He was never just for Birmingham. He wanted Birmingham to be a large-hearted city with international sympathies. And therefore, he was a great advocate of German literature and philosophy, and he taught that to ordinary people as well as Shakespeare And the other thing he really did was he championed freedom movements across Europe. He set up funds for them. He spoke in the town hall in favour of Polish independence, which is, I think, a a wonderful thing to remember now when we have a big, important Polish community in the city. Dawson was a personal friend of Mazzini, the Italian rebel, and of Louis Kossuth Kossuth, probably the great political poster boy of his day, the sort of, I mean, I remember when people had posters of Che Guevara up in their student rooms, well, Kossuth was the equivalent. But the first person to really recognise him and his importance in this country was George Dawson. So Kossuth led a rebellion against the Habsburg Empire and won freedom for Hungary, who then called the Russians in. And Kossuth was defeated and had to flee. Then the Americans thought, we're about freedom, and so they offered Kossuth asylum, and he went there, but he came to England first. And when he got to Southampton, George Dawson was there to meet him with a petition from the men of Birmingham asking Kossuth to visit. And when he did, some sixty to 70,000 people, representatives of the trades of Birmingham, met Kossuth at Small Heath, They paraded with him to the city centre of Birmingham, which was festooned with the Hungarian tricolour. Costa spoke for two and a half hours in the town hall, but not before weeping at this welcome that he had received. There were ballads composed for the occasion, which were sung by ordinary Brummies in the pub. It was seen as a great event in Birmingham's history. It's a wonderfully inspiring thing, I think, now when we're, threatened with a more inward-looking culture to think that actually, in its heyday, Birmingham looked outwards. It saw itself as international. It recognised political heroes from elsewhere. And that was because Birmingham was proud of its own liberalism, and it wanted to proclaim it. It wanted to make it available for others. It wasn't selfish about it. And costless visit to Birmingham is, I think, one of the great political events in the history of Birmingham, George Dawson helped to make it happen, which we've forgotten and which we should know more about now.
2: But he died quite young.
0: He did die young, 55, too young. Dickens died young, other great men of the period did. I think partly because they lived so intensely. But it was a great shock to Birmingham when Dawson died. I found some medallions that were made of his profile in the Library of Birmingham. People wanted to have a bit of George Dawson in their homes. The Birmingham Museum displays memorial cufflinks. Ordinary people wanted to show their love of him after he died.
2: What does Dawson mean to yeah. a young person living in Birmingham today?
0: There's no point in trying to evade the fact that rediscovering a bearded Victorian (laughs) patriarch might not be news to such people. But Dawson really is different. He's somebody who takes the past and asks, what can it do for us now? And in many ways, he's ahead of his time. So Dawson preached on Darwin not long after The Origin of the Species, he welcomed the theory of evolution. And he said, we should take this on theologically. And what that meant to him was we shouldn't be ashamed if our ideas change, even if our ideas of good or God or virtue change. So Dawson now would be a different man. He would be a man who would meet the demands of the time and he would encourage us to do so. And yet it's still true that in some ways he was ahead of us. He's talked about the most serious literature and art to everybody. And he insisted it was for you. I used the pronoun you deliberately. That's how he spoke to people. So if he were speaking in a mechanics institute in Manchester about Goethe's Faust, he'd tell you in the audience why this could matter to you. And he'd insist he was speaking to you, not as somebody with a higher degree, but as somebody just like you that this stuff was intimately connected to your life and it could help you live a fuller, happier, richer life. And that's what he would be saying. He would be standing against dumbing down. He wasn't for that. He didn't believe in it. He would be standing for the rights of all people to the fullest, richest possible life. And he would insist that giving people, including the excluded and oppressed, such a life, would enhance the lives of all of us.
2: What makes Dawson unique?
0: I think he's a unique Victorian sage, really, because he doesn't drift into a position of kind of disappointed reaction against the modern world, but instead embraces it. He always stands for... Progress wholeheartedly, he identifies with it. Not in a facile way, because he also stands for the great tradition. He wants to reinvent it. He wants to take what's serviceable in it and make it matter now. He also matters, I think, because he stayed in Birmingham. He didn't go to London. He didn't go abroad. He didn't identify with America. He thought that Birmingham could be the pattern of a new kind of municipal life. So that matters. He was clearly a gifted writer, but he was a writer who chose not to write. He chose instead to speak and to act. Fortunately, he had a greatly devoted amanuensis who transcribed his speeches, and we still have them. But unlike lots of great writers who made a monument to themselves, and so you can find it in a library, Dawson said, I've got this gift, but I'm going to use it to speak to as many people. And he addressed thousands upon thousands of people all over the country and across the world, really. And his word travelled. So he's a writer who thinks I'm going to use my gift to write history now to write the new history of the present. And I find that really interesting and and unusual.
2: Unlike many other famous nonconformists in Birmingham, Mm. like Joseph Chamberlain, Mm. Dawson never ran for office?
0: I don't think he did. And it is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because he was so much a leader that it would seem natural for him to have led in that formal way. But I think Dawson actually preferred to retain his independence. I mean, we've called him a lost prophet, and I think that prophetic role was what suited him. Not one who was set apart from the world and from government, and he admired it and he praised it. He thought acting was much more useful than prayer. Doing something political was more religious than prayer. At a time and to say that was quite a scandalous thing. But he also said, I am what I've always been, a freelance by myself. And I think he saw himself as prodding the conscience of the city and the country and the world from a position of ordinary independence. He also spoke expressly against priestcraft. He said he didn't want any priestcraft around him when he died. He said he'd made do with laity all his life. So he's a preacher who did not see himself as a priest. He didn't want that kind of institutionalized authority. He stood for a different kind of authority, the authority of the honest Ordinary man, being as truthful and as independent and as committed as he could be. So I think it's another reason to really admire him. He defines a different kind of public life.
2: So, you and this has been a revelation for me, but I'm left with one question. Yeah. Why have we lost
0: him? (laughs) That's the big question, isn't it? Because he died young and because. His successor as a Birmingham politician, Joseph Chamberlain, was so successful, Dawson's achievement was sort of pulled into Chamberlain's. And in a way, there's some justice in that. Chamberlain did a lot for the city as its greatest mayor. But Dawson wasn't Chamberlain, and he has things to offer us that Chamberlain does not have, even now – And I also happen to think that Dawson, in lots of ways, was more radical than Chamberlain was. He's more threatening. He asks for more of municipal government. He asks for more of central government. He was very singular. He wasn't exactly a party man. So to that extent, he can't be just co-opted. We have to take him whole. We have to say, here's somebody who stands for speaking to all of us. He won't serve my Personal interest and he won't serve yours. He stands for all of us and that weakens the motivation of any particular person to use them for their own selfish cause. My other answer to you would be perhaps slightly more controversially. I actually think that we've lost a sense in English culture of the breadth and value of our nonconformist heritage. I think we have one idea of nonconformism and it's a, as a Shakespearean, I'd say it's a Malvolio idea. It's an idea of pomposity, of a kind of killjoy hypocrisy. And that won't work for George Dawson. And there were lots of great nonconformists and a lot of them in this great city who did enormously important things for social justice. And I think we need that nonconformist heritage back now. And I think Dawson's a good advocate for it because he so much confutes the stereotype.
2: Ewan, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's my thank pleasure you.
0: to talk to you, Mike. Thank you.
1: To learn more about George Dawson, visit our website, www.historywm.com, where you will find more than 200 fascinating films, podcasts, articles and books uncovering the often forgotten history and heritage of Birmingham.